0: Ah, oh, the money rant. How true was that of our everyday life? Last week I shared a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says this. There is within the human heart a tough and fibrous root of fallen life whose nature it is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns me and my look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic nature, the man, better than a thousand volumes of theology would do. They are verbal symptoms of our deeper disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset, by the monstrous substitution. And Tozer calls this the tyranny of things. One of the favorite sermon titles I ever heard was by John Ortberg. And it was entitled, It All Goes Back in the Box. In fact, he has a study out now on it. But basically, the concept is that, you know, when the game's all over, it all goes back in the box. Whatever game you play, Monopoly, Clue, whatever, when you're done, it all goes back in the box. And he relates that to life. And he relates the box to the grave. It all goes back in the box. And uh, in that book, he actually references another gentleman who's written a lot about the whole subject of money. And that is Randy Alcorn. And they mention uh, some extremely wealthy people in American history and their thoughts concerning money. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt, he said, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor of the original uh, original of the Astor family said, I am the most miserable man on earth. And Henry Ford of the Ford automobile said I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Andrew Carnegie said millionaires seldom smile. Now you're like, okay, come on, Carrie. I, I would just like to get out of the paycheck-to-paycheck world that I live in. I'm not needing to be a millionaire, all right? Well, I understand that. And um, I'm not saying that money does not help. And I'm not saying that God does not want to prosper us. He does. But we have a tyrant that's at our heels. And that tyrant, as we looked at last week, is the tyrant of materialism. And if we do not address the subject of things, the subject of money, I think we just blindly go from one week to the next, stressed, highs and lows, Whether it's paycheck to paycheck, or if you're in the green side of life, you're trying to worry about your investments and what's up and down in the stock market. We just move through without right-sizing all the things that are provided for us in life and making sure that the tyrant of materialism doesn't detract us from the real reason that God made us. And God made us to take delight in Him. He is trust me, friends, preparing a place far greater than any material resources can provide, even in Southern California. Amen. We are here for a brief moment. That vapor, the mist, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. And we need to make sure that we take a serious look time and again with this subject matter. And so that's why last week we stepped into a series called Money Madness and Mission. And I like that money rant guy because that defines the whole money madness kind of side of life. We mentioned last week, though, as we step in this series, that there's many directions of which it could go concerning the whole subject of money and stewardship. We could look at the aspect that um, uh, we are to depend on and trust in God, and that is true. We could talk about working industriously. Handling money responsibly, how to save mightily, and how to invest wisely. Those are all appropriate subjects. The Bible speaks to those. And as we mentioned last week, it takes the subject matter straight on. But we're going to look at one only. Believe it or not, a whole month's worth of talks on one only out of the whole subject of money madness and the mission, and that is the subject of giving generously. Giving generously. Last week, we looked um, at the why should we give generously. And so the why was evidence in the whole idea that there's a tyrant in our life. This week, we're going to look at the how concerning giving generously. Next week, we'll look at the how much. And the final week, we will look at the where. But the subject of why... Last week, we uh, identified that God commands us to give not because he is a tyrant, but because he wants to set us free from the tyrant. So if I could just do a little recap on a slide from last week, we summed it up this way. Generous giving awakens us to the materialistic tyrant in our life and breaks the stranglehold by turning our focus towards eternal realities. All right? So the act of giving goes, "Ah." oh, is that indicative of how things have gotten their claws into us maybe more than what's appropriate for us as we walk through life. But when we then give, not only are we awakened to the tyrant, but the obedient act of giving begins to break the stronghold of uh, the tyrant itself. And we gave reference to several scriptures last week. This one, Matthew 6:19 is probably one of the strongest that's always thrown out whenever the subject of money is taught on from scripture. And it says this in Matthew 6:19, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy." Isn't that a nice thought? all the stuff we bow. and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's another nice thought about heaven. But then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we challenged ourselves, if you invest treasure in eternal realities, and then you will get interest in eternal things. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So if I have stock and Google guess where my thoughts are going to go during the course of a week what's happening with the tech market right so if my treasure is there all right that's where my heart and my mind's going to go But just like we have kids that pull us around in life. Oh, come mom, see this. i got to show you something. That's sort of what happens whenever we put treasure somewhere. Like, that's a nice car. And man, I'm so glad God's provided the opportunity for me to have this car. And I'm going to drive this car and take good care of this car. But guess what happens? The moment that there's financial interest in something, a treasure, guess what happens? It pulls us that direction. So if I have treasure here, guess where my heart's going to be? It's going to be there. Now, if I have somebody that I'm supporting on the mission field, all right? Guess what? I'm going to care about where they're at and what's going on. So if I put treasure and the investment of somebody knocking it down overseas in some country, then I'm sort of been pulled that direction too. So wherever you put your treasure, be mindful because that's where your heart will be pulled. Okay? And so that's how it relates to the why, at least on a human kind of level. There's other things we could have looked at last week as the, the why um, of the offering. But, On a pragmatic level, because we need to have our hearts go where the heart of God wants us to be. And we need to be freed up in a Western materialistic culture from the tyranny of things. All right? So if you weren't here last week, that's a good summation of it. You can catch it online. I want to move to the second question, though. And that is the question of the how. How? How are we to give? At this church, at the end of the service is usually where we place the offering. And the reason we do it there is not because it's a last thought, but I like to be able to receive connection cards and any response or commitments that somebody likes to make that they've been fed, uh, led to do that day. So we collect them at the end. But whenever it happens, whether in this church or another church, will the ushers please take their places to receive the Lord's offering? What goes through your mind in that particular moment? Good, we're about done. I'm out of here. I need to go eat lunch, right? All right. One guy, he asked that question. He put these things together. He says, I wonder if I'm obligated to give this week. I gave five bucks last week. Hmm, churches are always asking for money. I bet most of them don't have any idea how to properly administer a budget anyway. Hmm, I better put something in the offering, even if it's just a dollar. I wouldn't want that couple next to me to think that I was stingy. Or I wonder what Mr. Jones gives each week. He makes so much money, but he looks like the type who probably doesn't give that much anyway. Or how about, you know, that TV program last night on the African famine was shocking. I really feel for those starving kids someday when I can afford it. I'll try to help them out. Or maybe, well, at least this dollar is tax deductible. What goes through your mind when an offering opportunity is presented to you? Or in the day of electronic giving, and I know a lot of people give electronically and that kind of thing, which is good. We actually encourage that. Is I forgot the tithe was going through in my bank account. Now I'm really in the hole for making that bill payment. Right. Or should I really do the bill payment thing from my bank? Because then I have no control as if I can hold it back from one week to another. Now, what I'm getting at practically there is not to be meddling in your life. I'm really not. I'm wanting you to sort of refocus um, on the disposition of our heart as it relates to how we give. And that's why I've titled today, The Heart of an Offering. Don't worry, I'm not talking about how much. You can all skip out next week. We're going to talk about the how much, all right? Today, please don't. Today we're talking about the how, the disposition, the heart of an offering. And I want you to know, and this is always dangerous whenever you go through a sermon series, because God brings a lot of conviction in your own life as a pastor not only on a personal level, but also as a pastor related to leading a church body such as yourself. Even if you're new here this morning and you're sort of checking God out and you can't believe he showed up when the pastor's talking about money because that's what you always heard they do. There's been a shift in our culture and a shift even in the church today um, that I've become more unsettled by as I've recognized it this last week. And I can't say that it's necessarily a bad shift in and of itself because the intentions are well-meaning. But there's been a shift in how we teach, or let me say promote, the subject of giving. All right? There's a um, book out by a gentleman by the name of Cliff Christopher. And uh, it's called "Not Your Parents' Offering Plate." And some things are identified in this book. In 1995, there were 600,000 nonprofit organizations and 370,000 churches, all right in the U.S. In 2005, all right, nine years ago, ten years after the 1995, there are 1.8 million nonprofit organizations. And three seventy thousand churches, do you catch that? So the church number has stayed the same over that one 10year period, and I know whether we're ten years later now in this, but the nonprofit organizations tripled. What we find today is a lot more asking for the dollar, and there are worthy causes. And what's happened in church culture? And this guy, was, this guy was actually saying, you need to move this direction. And I'm here saying, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I'm a little disturbed by that. I mean, he's got some good points. There's been a shift from solid biblical doctrinal teaching concerning the subject of generous giving. And it's been replaced by fundraising. There's been this movement towards telling people that money follows vision. That's true. Trust me, I've, I've been a part of stewardship campaigns before, a part of movements of churches, and you have to have a vision. There is nothing wrong with the vision. But here's the problem, and it's tipped this direction. Is because we're competing for dollars, and, and oh my goodness, there was an earthquake, and those people need help, and here, text this number, and get $10 off your phone bill to be able to go to that cause, other kinds of You're, You are bombarded by this. All of us are. And so there's this emphasis on more of the fundraising aspect, according to vision casting, than there is just solid teaching concerning what the Bible says about a heart of an offering. I think we're growing weary of that in our culture. Good causes. I believe we're growing weary of it in churches. I know pastors grow weary of it. we got to cast a big vision and get people motivated and let's charge the mountain and take on that. That is true. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's our foremost reason why we give... We're grieving the heart of God as a people. And I'm just here to tell you that today. I said last week there's over 2,000 passages in the scripture that reference the use of money. One third of the parables or two thirds of the parables that Jesus spoke about give reference to the use of money. 10% of all that Jesus taught on subject wise has to do with the subject of money. Not because he's meddling for the purpose. Do you think God needs the money? Did Jesus need the money? No. He knows where your treasure is. That's where your heart is also. And so he addresses this immediate subject that's always around us in our life to get to the heart of the matter. And so the scripture takes on the subject. Heads up, eyes open, right at it. And we are going to dress Not what Carrie thinks about the heart of an offering, but what the Scriptures think about the heart of an offering. As I said last week, you can decide. You can decide after these weeks if um, the arguments or what the Scriptures lay out is compelling enough for you to redirect and change some of the trajectory and responsibilities for your life. So I'm going to have us look at three passages There's going to be an Old Testament example, a gospel example, and an epistle example. And the central principle is this. We give as an act and an attitude of worship. We give as an act and attitude of worship. We don't give because it's a great vision or that's a great cause. Now, that may play into it, but the foundation line is that line you see there. That's what the scriptures teach. We give as an act and an attitude of worship. Now, I thought when I put this up here, I'm like, well, man, we just need to park for a number of weeks and talk about worship. Because we think we might know what worship is, but do we really know? Well, we can't spend that kind of time there. So I'm just going to reference it this way. Worship comes from, etymology-wise, the idea that we give worth To something. This entity, this person, is worthy to receive worship. We worship God. Everybody's got to serve somebody, right? Everybody worships. It's like I got exposed to some dialogue on a Facebook thing this week that had to do with religion in schools. And I just got a little anxious about it all. I was so tempted to respond. But I know I always get myself in trouble when I do that. (laughs) Friends, no religion is a religion. So the concept that you can be religion neutral is an impossibility. So also with worship, we all Worship. Your friends worship. Your co workers worship. We give worth to something and we place our heart there and we move that direction. So we give as an act and attitude of worship, of worship to God. And so that's my exhortation. Simply put, this morning, we as a church, you as a family unit, we as individuals in our life need to make sure that we are not moving. Towards the whole concept of fundraising and just helping out here. That's all well and good. Good causes. But are we as believers, even if you're a seeker in God and considering worshiping God, the one true God, you need to know what he's going to ask of you. He's going to ask that you give generously. According. As it's defined by an act of worship and the attitude behind it. So the Old Testament passage, we're going to Malachi. We're going to do a teaching of Jesus or a story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark 12 and the epistle. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians. The epistles are the letters of the apostles after Jesus left and they sent them to the churches, all right? So a little bit of heavy scripture here. Hang with me. If you've got Bibles with you, that's really good. If not, i got all the text up here on the screen, but it gets a little overwhelming, all right? So we're going to start with Malachi's warning to Israel as recorded in the last book of the Old Testament. Israel had just come back from exile. They're back. They'd reestablished and built the temple. But they had started to get bogged down in rigid formalities. They were just merely going through the motions on a Sunday morning. You ever been there? <laughs> Maybe you're there this morning. It's easy to do, friends. It's easy to do. Malachi uh, chapter 1, I'm going to just read through the whole passage, then we'll come back and tag a few things. A son honors his father. Now, Malachi is a prophet, so he's speaking a bold word into the Israelite people. I believe he speaks a bold word to us. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O oh priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? (laughs) Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, Crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands? Said the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. So in verse 6. He charges then, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? And then he says, It is you, O oh priest! Great! So he sticks it right to the paid official vocational staff. It's you! Now you were thinking, Oh, he's preaching to us. No. This word speaking straight To the priest and what's going on in the temple, in the churches, if you will, of that day. So what's the basic charge? The charge is that they were despising God's name and not giving Him the honor. You see, one of the characteristics of this book and of that time with Malachi was basically, okay, here's an accusation in charge, and they would just sit around and say, okay, prove it. Prove it. Show us. Come on. That's easy to say. And so he says, all right, I'll show you. Takes them, metaphorically, into their uh, temple courts and all that's going on. You are putting on the altar, it says, that which is lame, that which is blind, that which is hurt. In verse 8, it says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Now, it wasn't because they didn't have any perfectly whole animals in their possession. Because if you look at verse 14, it says this. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to keep it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. (laughs) It's like, okay, so they go out in their pastures. Sheep. That's why, you know, it was uh, worthwhile. I, I just love it whenever I see the sheep grazing on, I don't know what they graze on around here, but it's not green grass. And um, so the guy moves the sheep around in French Valley, right? And that's wealth in those sheep. And so the person goes out. They're well-intentioned in one sense. They going to worship God. I'm going to take the offering, uh, sacrifice to the temple. And goes out. And they know where their good ones are. And they know where the weak, broken, crippled, diseased ones were. And so they go out blindly. I'm not going to look where the good ones are. Oh, there's a little one. Who is is he going to make it or not? Well, I think I'll take this one. <laughs> and they bring it in and go, hey, hey, here's my offering. Now, who do you think that you're kidding who do you think you're kidding? That's why it says here, it comes back, it says, in verse 8, it says, now try offering them to your governor. Would he please with you? Would he accept you? See, they were still under Persian control in and, and one sense, and so there were Persian governors. It's like, all right, why don't you try to give that to the IRS and see if that works for you, buddy? You would never think about doing that. Oh, that's what? Honor, respect. This was Grieving the heart of God. And God spoke to Malachi, and he said, I need you to step into this situation. I need you to deal with it. What they were doing was not in just a simple, selfish manner. I want to keep the good ones for myself. But they had to pay to the government as well. And so they knew that they needed to give well to the government. And so they sort of flipped the priorities. You see, the priorities in their giving and the use of what monetary things they had was me first, human beneficiaries around me second, and then God third. God says that's not the way it goes. That is not the way that it goes. Those are misplaced priorities. Your salvation and what you have done for us isn't really worth that much, God. They didn't say that, but their actions described that. And when I say we give as an act and an attitude of worship, it's going to keep going back to what is the disposition and the attitude time and again in the life that's there. Verses 12 and 13. You profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden it has become. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to go there sometimes myself. How about you? Wow, this thing of giving the Lord an offering has become a burden. Can I just sort of pass on it? You can. God loves a cheerful giver. And God never calls us to give through coercion. And these people were giving an offering but it wasn't acceptable because of the attitude. But many a times consistent obedience becomes a burden. We say let's get sort of the sacrifice business over with so I can get back and do what I really want to do. Spend where I really want to spend. I pray God that I would not be in that number. Do you know what the word sacrilege means? Sacrilege is one of those big words. Sacrilege means defying a sacred practice or a sacred place. Oh, that's sacrilege. If we received God's offering today and somebody was at the back and grabbed the offering baskets and took off with it, we'd go, oh, how could they dare to do that? That's, that's sacrilege. Who would ever do that? Right? That would be horrendous. But guess what? God's saying in the scripture that not only is something like that sacrilege, according to Malachi, there's one sacrilege that's even worse than that, and that's putting on the offering in the offering basket what we didn't need anymore anyway and didn't mean that much to us. Huh? I think I'll tip God today. He's been pretty good like my waitress was last night. Sack religion. I, there's a humorous story that I've always carried with me for a number of years on this. And the story is about a little boy sitting at the dinner table with his family, and there's pork chops for the day. And so he's eating his pork chops, and other people are eating us, and then there's like three or four pork chops left in the center of, of the family table that nobody's eating. And so he quietly takes them and starts stacking them on a plate. His mom sees out of the corner eye. I know what he's doing. I know where he's going. She takes him, stacks him back. Then she goes and gets all the bones that are on everybody else's plate and sticks them on the boy's plate. Boy hangs his head. He gets up. He walks out to his favorite dog, Dowser, in the backyard. He leans down to Dowser and he says, I'm sorry, Dowser. I was preparing an offering for you, but all I have is a collection. (laughs) It's the attitude. And God was deeply, deeply burdened, not by the amount, but by the attitude. The heart of an offering. And if I could just do a quick sidebar here, on this, I don't believe it's just with financial offerings in our life, friends, our treasure. I believe it's also with our time and our talent. Are you offering to God your best in life? Or are you just giving him the leftovers in those areas too? The Old Testament principle then is taken into the New Testament and made quite clear as well. And so I want to jump to Jesus in the Gospels. And like I said, 10% of his recorded ministry on earth had to do with the subject of money. And what we find in this particular story that we're going to look at stands in contrast, contrast to the attitude that we just saw in Malachi's time. And it has to do with the poor widow and the two coins. Mark 12 says this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. I've always been bothered by this story. How about you? What's Jesus doing looking at somebody's offering? Right? Well, this is in the temple courts. Temple's huge, right? Big. The outer courts, you know, Solomon's porticos, court of the Gentiles. Then you get into more of the inner court area, the holy place areas, and you find that there's the woman's court, and then there's the Israeli court. And this happened to be in the woman's court because that's where they received uh, the monies, where the treasuries were. And this area was probably the size, well, it's about 200 feet by 200 feet, so it's like half a football field, uh, including the end zone maybe, uh, a little bit wider than that, and uh, the width of a football field. So that's the size of this area in the temple. And there's uh, other uh, courts in the four corners. But on the sides, in the in the columns that are there, they had, um, I think it was 13, 13 um, uh offering receptacle kind of things, and they were like trumpets or whatever. They were small at the top, and then they billowed down like this. And so there were different kinds of offerings for different things. I won't go into all that. But they would go, and they would walk over, and they would put their coins or their money in there. A lot of times it was on payment for a sacrifice so that, that one would be made on their behalf. And so uh, it was a lot of commotion, a lot of comings and goings. It was sort of an open public environment. And so there you got Jesus, picture Jesus. I don't know if it was the three, I don't know if it was the 12, but they're just hanging out. They're hanging out. Hey, how's, how's it going, Joe? Hey, man, what do you think about that football game today? I mean, what did they talk about back then, right? And so, uh, you know, they're hanging out, they're dialoguing. And here's Jesus, teachable moment with his disciples. And some broken old poor widow comes. And she puts in these two coins that are a fraction of a penny, a fraction of a penny. And he said, "I tell you the truth, this poor widows put more into the treasury than all the others." What? What? Now we're going to tag this next week and go into it a little bit deeper. But what Jesus was looking at wasn't the amount, was he? He was looking at the heart. The heart of the matter. Now, with this woman, you know, I, I don't know. It's, um, you could say, well, those two coins, that's silly. Why throw those coins in there? Because that's not going to help out anything, right? But she had her trust in God. She must have heard Jesus' teachings from before. in Matthew that said, don't be anxious about tomorrow for every day has enough worries of its own. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Your Heavenly Father knows how to take care of you. This poor widow, she had trust in God even when everything was going downhill. But she gave it not just because of her trust. She gave it as a token of her love. A token of her love for God and that is what Jesus was commending Now, I don't think there's not a person in here who wouldn't mortgage our house, sell our house, sell whatever we had if we had to get the resources for a surgery that would save our child's life. Am I correct? That kind of heart and love that you would have as a parent for your child is what God is looking for and Jesus sees in this poor widow. Look at that! She gave more than to the treasury than all the others. Why? Because he was not defining more based on how much. He was defining more based upon the heart and the attitude of what was going on there. Lord, may I not get bothered by the fact that Jesus looks at my heart. But may I. Others may others may categorize me one way or the other. May I not really care. It's not an indifferent, arrogant kind of attitude. But it's like, Lord, may I be driven by how you see my heart. I don't know about you, friends, but sometimes, especially if you've ever been falsely accused or done, had some things thrown at you, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God knows your motive? That God knows your heart? And so, this idea of Him watching His people would drop offering in should be an encouragement to us, not a threatening kind of idea. Next week, we'll tag this text just a little bit more. But I remember a time when um, I was in graduate school and seminary in New York, and uh, one of my friends I'd started to develop I remember the first year was a, a young boy, young man by the name of Ozzy, and he was from Puerto Rico, and Ozzy's now an Alliance pastor in the uh, New York City area. And uh, we went to McDonald's. You know, and when you're in school, you're sort of broke all the time, right? And um, so he's going to get some McDonald's. And he ends up paying for my McDonald's. I'm like, Ozzy, you're not paying for my food. Yeah, I am. It's fine. It's fine. I said, no, I'm paying it for you. He, <laughs> he looked at me sternly and he said, Carrie, do not keep me from receiving a blessing in blessing you. Oh, all right. Why? We all get caught up in making sure things are equal, one with another, this and that kind of thing. God moves past that and he says, is there a heart, is there an attitude that's wanting to bless me with an act of worship for who I am? And that's exactly where he goes with that. The third example quickly, and we'll move through it, is the Macedonian spirit. What we see in the Old Testament and what we see in Jesus' words becomes sharp when we get to the epistles as well. And I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians 8, or look up here on the, on the screens. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We gave reference to chapter 9 last week. We're back in uh, the chapter before that this week. The same sort of context, all that's going on. It says this, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. So we urge Titus, since he had an earlier, since had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, Paul begins this section by writing about the churches, not in Corinth, where he's writing the letter to the churches in Corinth. He begins this passage by talking about the Christians in another place, up the road, in Lake Elsinore. All right? Those Christians up there in Macedonia, I don't mean anything by that, but but, okay, up up the interstate, all right? Verse 2 and 3, Out of their most severe trial, the Macedonian churches, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. It was like the widow all over again. Isn't it? It was not an isolated event. In spite of their poverty, they gave beyond their means. And then in verse 7 and 8, Paul takes this Macedonian example and he challenges the Corinthians to do likewise. It says this, but just as you excel in everything, and maybe you've heard this verse before. It's a great verse. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Now, does that catch you off guard, though, a little bit? We've always believed, and rightly so, that it is wrong sometimes to point to one person or one group who gives a certain amount of money and then turn to another person or group and say, Hey, look what they did! Belly up! You give likewise! See what they did? Is that what God's doing here? Through the writer? Through Paul? No. Why then did the Holy Spirit ask Paul? To do this, I, I want to do a nine-five-one here. Let's work. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says this: For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This giving was based upon what? The work of Jesus Christ himself. The Macedonians had a deep, rich understanding of what Christ had done for them. He was rich, yet he became poor, gave up his place in the heavens. He ascended to this earth, was born through the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, went into ministry vocationally in one sense at the age of 30, and for three years he taught and did miracles. And then they didn't like where he was going because he was claiming to be God, and so they uh, they crucified him. He gave up all that to become poor, so that we, through his death, and then his resurrection, might become rich and lavished with all kinds of goods. Not the jewelry and the gold, and you know, the Benjamins. He, he lavished upon us his riches that he redeemed and bought for us at the cross. And if you're a non-believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian or a Christ follower, you're just seeking, I wanted you, this is the greatest news about this whole talk this morning is that you get the riches of God through Jesus Christ if you surrender your life to Him and say, I want to follow Him. And then He just sort of chucks a bunch of things into your life. Not just eternal life, begins to give you peace and joy, forgiveness of your sins. Life get any easier? Not necessarily so, but you have His presence with you as you're walking through life. And so you're like, well, these are pretty good riches. I can't get these at Walmart or Costco. Friends, God wants to lavish His riches upon you if you're a non-believer this morning through His Son Jesus Christ. and if you're ever in that place where you want to do that, you come talk to me or talk to your friend that brought you, because that's the greatest riches you can ever receive. But these Macedonians, they got it. They understood in their poverty, they understood this. So let's go then to verse one. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What grace? That grace we just looked at in verse 9. All right? And then verse 5. And they did not do as we expected. Oh, my goodness. What? They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us in keeping with his will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. I just need to highlight that for us, friends. This is not a money series about you beefing up your offering for the church. This is about aligning your life for how the scriptures teach us concerning wealth. And it begins by turning first to the Lord and giving yourself to him. Because they gave themselves first to the Lord and they received his grace, then they were able to turn around and give lavishly to other people. The lavishness of God's love demonstrated in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That was the grace that God poured out upon them as a people. And now they wanted to pour it out by giving a great offering to others who had need, even though they were in poverty. Paul says this grace was poured out into the heart, human hearts in the midst of adversity. They gave themselves to God. And he said the glory of their salvation gripped them so much that that they began to plead with the Apostle for the giving privilege of giving. Verse 4, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. (laughs) It's like they took the offering. Oh, wait a second, bring the buckets back! Let's pass it again! Let's do it again. Not because we got bills that aren't paid, but let's do it again because of the lavish riches of having first given ourselves to the Lord. That was their attitude and their disposition. So he is not rebuking the Corinthians because they're deadbeats. He's exalting the heart of, that he sees in the Macedonians. And he says, do likewise, not necessarily with the mountain, but my goodness, why have you gotten so broken down with this whole offering deal in your churches there? Look at the heart of the people in these churches here in this other place. That's where you need to run with the grace. So 2 Corinthians 8, 7, just as you excel in everything, excel also, you Corinthians, in this grace of giving. All of us in this room are seeking, if we're followers of Jesus, to excel in our relationship with him. And many of you are excelling in some very good places. The challenge from the word today is will you also excel in this gift of giving? It can happen to you. It can happen to me this morning. One lady in the congregation She was a very sensitive lady, wrote a few notes to her pastor one time in the area of giving. She said, giving is not just an ordinary privilege. It's a very basic privilege reserved for a specific category of people. It is one of the privileges purchased by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And then she said something to him. uh, I think that is very memorable. She said this. Anyone can give to charity but only blood-bought sinners can give to God. Don't you like that? Anyone can give to charity, but only blood-bought sinners can give to God. For the first 300 years then following the New Testament, the early church, they had a very unique practice. So I understand in part. When they had a meeting like this, they would start out by dividing the group between those who were followers of God and those who were just seekers of God and trying to figure out if Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And in those early, first 300 years, they actually separated these groups and called the one group the offerers. And they called the other group um, those who can't afford to offer. The offerers. And those, not necessarily they can't afford, but those forbidden to offer. And so then when they parted their ways, the first thing they did was they received the offer. Isn't that a little bit different than how we sometimes do it? And I explained why we always do it at the end. And, and you can sort of tag it wherever, I guess, in one sense. But it's, it's not an afterthought. It needs to be heart, front and center in our worship as well. Matthew six twenty four: no one can serve two masters. Either he hate the one and he'll love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Friends, I just want to share with you today that I believe we've lost sight in the church that offering is an act of worship. And I will do my best as leader of this church, as God so enables me, to not lead us in a dimension of giving to God with gimmicks, with fundraising attitudes, or with just simple vision casting. Though so catching a vision for how our resources make a difference is important. I will lead with a biblical and doctrinal basis that says our offering is to be given as an act and an attitude of worship. So I framed it up this way. Generous giving as an act and attitude of worship to God will be filled with joy. To the extent we find the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Think of those Macedonians. They were filled to the full of the joy that they had in Christ. That led them to giving joyfully, cheerfully. In the message that Eugene Peterson wrote, he paraphrases 2 Corinthians 9 7. He says, God loves it when the giver delights. In the giving. I put it this way. You will not delight in giving. Until you delight in the Lord. How great it would be for us as a people. If we were known. Not because we gave generously. In some amount. For mostly, But that we so delighted in the joy. And the riches we have in Christ. That it overflowed in such rich generosity. To God. If you are challenged in your generous giving, then maybe you are challenged in your worship to God. If you are challenged in your worship to God, then maybe you are challenged and experience the joy of your salvation you have in Jesus Christ. You will not delight in giving until you delight in the Lord. This goes to the heart of an offering as it relates to God and answering the question of how we should give. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I knew it would take a while to walk through these passages. But I pray that the weight of the Scripture speaks to our life. And I'm going to do something what I don't think we've done since I've been here. I'm going to ask the ushers, I don't know how many we have today, as they get prepared to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, as well as your connection cards, if they would just come up here and we're going to have a prayer for the offering today. Amen. Some of you came through some church traditions where this was normal. Maybe you haven't seen it for a while. I came up in a church. They were so organized. It was sort of cool to see. They split. It's not about the mechanics, is it? It's not even about the amount. In fact, do not give this morning unless you give as an act of worship to God. And even if it's a fraction of a penny. It can be seen by Jesus today as greater than any gift given. Our Lord Jesus, this morning we are grateful that you do see the heart behind an offering. Lord, lead us as a people, individuals, as families, as a church, as missional communities. God, lead us in a measure of giving to you that's honoring and glorifying to attribute to you worth Lord, we do not want to serve mammon money. We want to serve you. Lord, may you take that tyrant, loosen it from our life, and then catapult us into a fresh joy of our salvation. And may we give with hilarious joy and celebration to you for what you have done. So take this offering. Receive it to yourself. Lord, yes, multiply it. Use it in the means that you've called us to steward faithfully in your kingdom's work, but this is an offering to you. Lord, we lift our hearts in worship, in song, as well as in offering. Amen.